Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is caught for a touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? Each week, we dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. We have got a jam-packed show coming up for you. Jason Cole from Yahoo Sports. He covers the NFL. He will join me. We'll get the latest on the Drew Brees negotiations with the New Orleans Saints. Christine Soffel from the SEAT Conference. She will join me. She's a former technology executive with the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Phoenix Coyotes. She's partnering with a friend of mine who used to work for the Portland Trailblazers, Chris Dill. They're putting on a fantastic technology conference in Boston this summer, focused on sports and entertainment. So we'll talk to Christine Stoffel coming up in the show. One of my favorite writers ever, Sports Illustrated writer, author of many books, NPR contributor, Frank DeFord. He will join me to discuss his new book and his career and just how the sports world has changed and how the sports media has changed. He's seen a lot in all of his years. Frank DeFord coming up on the show. Another fantastic author, one of my favorite, Buzz Bissinger, Pulitzer Prize winning author. He's got a new book out called Father's Day, A Journey into the Mind and Heart of My Extraordinary Son. You may recognize him as the author of Friday Night Lights. Fantastic conversation with Buzz Bissinger coming up on the show today. And Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12. They've been busy. They're getting ready to launch their new TV network. Lots of changes with the uh, postseason basketball tournament. And what's going to happen to college football and their postseason? We'll catch up with Larry Scott, who's become pretty much the most powerful commissioner in college athletics of the Pac-12, coming up on the show today. A reminder, visit our website, sportsbusinessradio.com. You can download our podcast there. You can also find uh, our blog, our Twitter feed, our Facebook feed. All of that stuff is at sportsbusinessradio.com. Brian Griggs, our executive producer. Griggs, how are you? Doing good. You know, I'm, uh, I'm loving this time of year. NBA playoffs are uh, on fire right now. It's fun to watch that. And, you know, I'm also, I'm a big Olympics guy, so I'm starting to see the promos on NBC, and I'm, I'm getting pumped for that. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Are you going to be wearing, like, the American flag to work <laughs> no, every day? I should. I should do that one day. No, I'm probably not that extreme, but I will be uh, tuning in on the various networks throughout the evening and during the day here in the studio. Yeah, we'll have to ramp up the Olympic coverage soon. All right. Lots of good stuff coming up on the show today. Keep it here. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. More of the show is coming up. Come here, rude boy, boy, can you get it up? Come here, rude boy, boy, is you big enough? Take it, take it, baby. It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter, and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. 
We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything is on the Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. All right, we're back. Let's talk some NFL here with Jason Cole of Yahoo Sports. Jason, how are you? I'm fantastic. What's going on, Brian? Well, I see that the NFL just announced that the 2013 Pro Bowl is going to be played in Hawaii. I know there had been talk that the Pro Bowl may go away. Was this surprising news to you? I got down on my knees and thanked the Lord that the <laughs> Pro Bowl will be played because there's really nothing that that expresses and, and represents the game and the passion and the hard-hitting. And really, you know, all the concussion issues that you want to talk about are all wrapped up in the Pro Bowl. Yeah. So pretty much it's a worthless game, and we're surprised that it's still around, right? It's touch football. So, I mean, look, the, the, the commissioner has stated what I think a lot of people who actually watch football and care um, have been saying for years, which is the Pro Bowl is useless. You know, if you're going to play this, um, you know, you got to find another way. It's it's a joke of a game. Um, you know, turn it into some other kind of competition where the potential for players to get hurt is less, but it's still fun. If you could do that, then that's fine. I don't, but that's not football. And and I don't blame players for not wanting to play hard and get hurt. I mean, that's that's you know, they do enough to their bodies. Why throw another game, especially when you're really, I mean, what twenty thousand dollars on the line? I mean, that's not a lot of money to play to take a risk. You know, you're, you know, you're potentially half million million dollar contract on a twenty thousand dollar you know all star game. So I, I I totally understand it. Um, but it you know if they're going to do it, make it more than a farce. So he's going to give the players a chance to see if they can fix the game. I expect that they're not going to be able to do enough. And the game is, you know, going to go the way of the, the dodo bird. And we're going to be done with it finally probably in another year. Yeah. It's time for our annual Drew Brees update. Every time I have you on, I ask if there's anything new there. I'm still just really flabbergasted that the Saints haven't gotten this deal done already. What are you hearing? Well, I wrote last week uh, my column about how there's a real question between the NFL Players Association and NFL Management Council. It's not really between them right now because there's been no filing yet on it um, in terms of trying to interpret the rule. But there's a question here that the Players Association believes that if you franchise him this year and they franchise him again next year, that his his base salary will have to go up 44%. Currently, it's at a little over $16.3 million dollars. That means it would go if the, if the union is right, it would go to about twenty three million dollars. If I if I you know my math is right, and if the NFL management council is correct, it would only go to twenty. That's a pretty significant difference, and it really changes the parameters um, by which you know the the contracts can be negotiated and puts a lot more pressure on the Saints to get something done now rather than wait. I don't think that's being taken seriously yet. And I still think the Saints are really dug in on what this number is, um, and they're just not moving. Um, and they refuse to move, and they're, they feel no push to move right now. 
in any way, shape, or form, even though they need Drew Brees really badly, at least in my opinion. What's the number they're dug in on? They're dug in on about 18 or $19 million a year, from what I, well, I understand, because they want to keep it in line with the average of both Tom Brady's contract and Peyton Manning's contract. And I understand the logic. I just don't think it's realistic. And Breeze wants twenty to twenty-two a year, right? He wants more like he wants more like twenty-one to twenty-three. I think he would settle for probably closer to twenty-one, you know, twenty or twenty-one. But he wants to be up in that range. He wants to reset the quarterback market. And I also understand this. I mean, a lot of people are sitting there go, "Oh, why does he have to be so greedy?" Well, he's never hit the big contract the way Peyton Manning has twice in his career, actually three times. But twice because remember he was a second round pick when he came out, and when he hit free agency with the Saints back in 2006, he was coming off an arm injury. And while it was still a, you know a, you know great contract in a lot of ways, I think six years, sixty million, that pales in a lot in a large way to the contracts that both Brady and Manning have been able to hit over the course of their career, particularly Peyton Manning. And so this. This is his one, really his last chance to really seriously cash in. And he wants to take that, that opportunity. And, look, you're talking about the best player in team history, the guy who's done more for that community and that team than anybody else in the history of the team. You know, I, I think he has a pretty good argument on his side. Jason Cole of Yahoo Sports is my guest. Let's talk about a story you wrote about Cam Newton. Cam Newton said he was a bad teammate last year. Explain the story. Well, talking to him, I remember last year, he had a lot of games where after they would, you know, he'd play really well and they would lose and he would be very frustrated and he would mope around and he would try and, and there were shots of him on the sideline being really negative and down and dour during games because he was doing his intensity to get to him. I think a lot of his teammates said, hey, look, dude, you know, you've got to you got to ride with it a little bit more um, and, and ride through the punches because we need you to step up and be a leader and rally people rather than us having to try and think we have to rally you. And I think that he recognized he let his emotions out too much in a negative way, and that's why he said it was a bad teammate. But as I also pointed out in the article, this is sort of like going to the Palace of Versailles and complaining about the weeds in the garden. I mean, let's let's <laughs> keep this in perspective, okay? You know, pretty much everything is really great. He just has this one little thing he's got to work on. So to 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 expand this and say, oh God, he's such a bad teammate. You know, let, let, let's let's just keep it, you know, in some perspective. Jason, which NFL team has helped itself the most to this point of the off season? Oh, I would say Tampa Bay. Uh, you know, it, obviously in free agency they did really, really well uh, in getting you know, Vincent Jackson and, and Carl, you know, Carl Nix and uh, Eric Wright, who's not a great corner, but uh, is a good one. Uh, Josh Freeman's lost twenty pounds; looks terrific. Uh, I, I think that the attitude that Greg Schiano has brought in, you know, Dallas Clark, if they can keep him healthy, getting rid of the negativity of a Kellen Winslow. Um, those are all really good things um, that they've done. Uh, now, you know, they still are coming off 10 consecutive losses, and five of those were really, really ugly. Um, but I would say that they've really helped themselves the most. And, you know, that division is tough, but I think that they have a chance to make a run at a, perhaps second place and maybe a wild card berth in that, 
in that if they get themselves back on track the way they were in 2010. And I like I like their first round pick with Mark Barron. I don't, I don't think it's a great great pick, but I think it's it's pretty good and, and fills a pretty important need for them. Which coach enters the season on the hot seat the most? Ooh, uh, I usually like to think that's by division, but I mean, like Andy Reid. You got to think that time's running out. Uh, I know that Joe Banner and you know and Jeff Lurie really like him and and want to stay the course, but you know if they don't get this thing straightened out here this year and and, and you know with the offensive line that they have, this could be a real train wreck. Um. Yeah, you know, I gotta think that Andy Reid's in some serious, serious trouble for a guy who, who has been around on that job so long. Jason Garrett in Dallas, obviously, and in some hot water. Rex Ryan, I think, is a lot closer to the end than people would think for a guy who's been to two ASC championship games. But you know, the Jets are not a patient team, and you know, Woody Johnson really wants to own New York, and they just keep falling further and further behind now with not only their own kind of embarrassing season, um, but the Giants winning another title, I think that puts a lot of pressure on Rex Ryan. Yeah, it's interesting. I saw an interview recently with uh, Michael Vick, and you know, he basically said Andy Reid won't be fired on my watch. He almost guaranteed that the Eagles would have a much better season this year than they had last year. Do you think they had so many new parts last year, maybe having training camp and a season under their belt now, they may turn into the team that a lot of people thought they could have been last year? I think it'll help. And I think that, you know, look, Juan Castillo can only get better as a defensive coordinator. He can't be any worse. So, you know, you'd hope that that's all true. Um, the problem is, look, the offensive line is still a train wreck. And Andy Reid is a really stubborn guy about fixing. I mean, some of that's not his fault. You know, when Jason Peters gets hurt, you know, and you know, it's, and you have to sign Demetrius Bell, that's not really Reid's fault. But it's indicative of, They've got some real problems up front, and they couldn't protect Vic last year. You know what? How are they going to run their offense if they can't protect it? So, to me, you know, I got some real concerns about how this team is going to function still. Interesting. So, you're out there in uh, Florida. The Miami Dolphins are going to be the featured team on Hard Knocks. What do you think of that? Well, I hope they show a lot of Ryan Tannehill's wife. That's all <laughs> yeah, I think we all do, right? Oh God, yeah. I mean, that's she. I, I was I was saying that to a friend of mine, another writer. I said she's going to steal that show because who's the star on that team? I mean, who's you really? You know, Reggie Bush. Okay, he's kind of interesting, but not really demand. You know, compelling. There's, you know, Brandon Marshall's gone and all his goofiness, and you know, they got a new coach who's kind of a boring guy, but but a good man in Joe Philbin, but kind of a boring. Not, not this electric personality like a Rex Ryan. Um, you know, so you, you keep thinking, who's the star of the show? And you, and you, if you know, Tannehill's wife wants to be out there. I mean, she's, number one, she's really good looking. And number two, she wants to be an actress slash model. Okay? So this is like, this is a layup drill for her. She's, she's got to be, you know, salivating over this chance to steal this show. And that really seriously could happen. And, Boy, can you imagine what the other wives and girlfriends are going to be like if she steals the show? It's going to be a train wreck. There are going to be some cat fights. Oh, it'd be awesome. 
You know who I think is going to try and steal the show? And tell me what you think of this. The owner, Stephen Ross. This is a guy, it didn't surprise me in the least. After like 15 teams said no, that he steps up and says, hey, I'm publicity starved and I want some attention for my team that's fallen behind the heat in the Marlins in, in Florida and can't sign a free agent and can't get anyone to come coach this team. I think Stephen Ross is going to be the guy who tries to put himself out there front and center. What do you think of that? Well, it could happen, except he has the personality of an encyclopedia. <laughs> so that'll be good TV for about five I mean, seconds. I mean, like, come on. I mean, put Tannehill's wife on one side and Stephen Ross on the other. Who are you betting on? Well, I'll take Tannehill's wife, but the thing is, is that Stephen Ross exactly. is the owner. Exactly. <laughs> you bet on Tannehill's wife. Bet on the hot blonde chick. It's just bet on the hot blonde chick on a TV show to steal the show. This is like Three's Company, dude. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> if you could have selected one team in the NFL to be featured on Hard Knocks for training camp, who would you have picked? Um, well, you always gravitate towards Dallas or the Jets because they're both kind of a train wreck, um, and it's, it's fun to watch that unfold. Um. Detroit would be a team that I would be really interested in because hmm. Jim Schwartz is a lot more interesting than you think. He's he's a smart guy. He's a profane guy, which is a good combo. And you have Indomitian Sue, and so you got your Portland local angle, who I think you know is is compelling. Calvin Johnson, Matthew Stafford, up and coming stars. I think Detroit would have been really fascinating to me. And, you know, the Patriots, all, you know, are always fascinating to me. But but of teams that are sort of, that maybe a lot of people don't think about, I would have thought about Detroit very seriously. I would have liked to have seen Denver and Peyton Manning's integration into that organization, but I know we probably wouldn't have gotten any access. One. Right. Uh, that's, a good, that's a really good one. Peyton's really interesting, and then... John Fox is a really interesting guy, and you got John Elway. I mean, you got some, you got some really interesting characters there too. That's a that's a really good one to have have put out there. I, I you know, no question. I mean, North Turner, who probably I should have been on the top of the hot seat list too. Um, San Diego, I, I love seeing the anxiety there um, uh, from that team, and then AJ Smith. God, see AJ Smith behind the scenes would be fantastic. To get to, for people to get a a full-blown look peek inside to his ego would be fantastic. <laughs> All right, before I let you go, what's for dinner tonight? Uh, well, I'm going to be at the JFK airport, so um, there's probably a piece of Sabara pizza. That's <laughs> you can't okay, whip something so up at the airport? Nothing, there's, 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 there's nothing elegant to be out there. Um, yeah, the best I did this last week, we made ribs. So that was, you know, you know with a nice sort of Memphis dry rub barbecue. But wow. That was, you know, that was, that, that, this was not a great inventive week because I've been traveling so much. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to join the show. You are the best uh, chef of any reporter that I know. So I've got to bring that up at the end of every <laughs> every interview. I appreciate that. And, I, and, and it is true. I really am. But we'll, I will hopefully one day prove that to you. All right, Jason. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Ryan. Take care. Bye.
Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. You're not the type, type of girl to remain with the guy, with the guy too shy, too afraid to say he'll give his heart to you forever. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is Christine Stoffel. She is the founder of SEAT, which is the Sports and Entertainment Alliance in Technology. It's a conference that is going to be held this year, August 5th to 8th in Boston. It's a -a one-of-a-kind conference consortium for sports executives owned by sports executives. Christine, how are you? I'm excellent. Thank you so very much, Brian, for hosting me. No problem at all. So I want to talk a little bit about this conference in Boston. You used to work for the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Phoenix Coyotes. I know you team with Chris Dill, who was the CIO of the Portland Trailblazers. But there's not many conferences out there, if any, that are run by uh, people who lived and worked in the sports space, in the technology space like yourself. That is correct. You know, and, and to be really honest, I mean, um, I'll tell you a little bit about how this this whole thing started. It was, um, you know, there, you're right. There are very few at any conferences that are out there that are sports technology conferences that are owned and operated by sports execs or prior sports execs. And this actually started very simple and very, very innocent. Uh, when I was with the Phoenix Coyotes hockey team, uh, that was my first sports uh, team that I have been working with, and so just to kind of get out there and talk to some of my peers, I just started starting to call some of the other executives across some of the other uh, the NHL teams, and what ended up happening is over the next couple of months, we ended up putting together an actual kind of getting together a networking uh, conference. Uh, originally, we, we worked with the uh, ALSD and brought together our technology people um, all of our peers across the industry, and to just talk about, to network together and talk about the technologies that are impacting the industry and how we can better influence the industry and make some strategic changes across the industry leveraging technology. And six years later, it's a full-blown conference. It's grown for six years into um, a, a full-fledged conference that is continue to be with the same methodology, the same ideals that started six years ago, owned and operated by Sports Execs. So, Christine, what are some of the topics that will be covered at this conference? So we have a variety of topics. This year, we've actually expanded our 
uh, our agenda. And we have several tracks in our agenda this year, uh, focusing on everything from the core technologies of uh, the, uh, the sports industry, from digital signage to Wi-Fi, uh, you know, mobile technologies, really a lot to do with the fan experience. You know, our goal is to leverage really innovative technologies to improve and make an incredible fan experience. When, uh, when fans enter the stadiums and arenas and in entertainment venues, we also have CRM, an, uh, an entire track dedicated to CRM and database. And we are actually, SEAT is the first conference in the world to actually have a full-fledged CRM track just for, de- just for sports entertainment. So we have, we've really grown from just core technologies and fan experience technologies to we have social media discussions and panel sessions. CRM, we're talking about uh, also need and energy efficiency around these stadiums arenas. A lot of a variety of topics to discuss. How many stadiums and arenas, sports facilities in the United States would you say are equipped for Wi-Fi now? Like, what's the percentage? Because it seems like it's growing, and you know, I can't believe pretty soon that it's not going to be everyone. I would take a guess that there's probably 50% that are effectively uh, equipped that way. Again, the technology is changing. You know, keeping in mind, technology is changing every day. And, but also the fan expectation is changing. And so we're trying to keep up with the, with the expectations of what the fans in bringing their own device, the BYOD. You know, when they bring in their devices, they expect to be able to get access just like they're anywhere else at home or, or in a, you know, anywhere they may be. So creating that, that wireless infrastructure and building that wireless, wireless infrastructure takes a tremendous amount of investment uh, and partnering with the right companies uh, that's specific to that entertainment venue or that stadium and arena that's going to really fulfill what they need and what their fans are looking for. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the big challenges in sports these days is getting fans off their couch at home to come buy a ticket and come to the venue for the live in-person sports experience. I know one of the things the NFL is doing right now is that they're requiring all their teams to post fantasy stats throughout the game because, you know, you can sit at home on your couch and get the Red Zone channel and get all of that information in real time. They want to make sure that you're getting that same information at the venue itself. I think that's interesting trend that uh, we're seeing. It is, you know, and another trend that you're also seeing is the, from a league perspective. The leagues have seen, you know, with the recession and, and, you know, people weren't spending the kind of money that they were on entertainment. But now there's been a different philosophy over the last two years. Uh, the fans are actually taking their money and, and investing into and buying those tickets and going out to the venues and the sporting events and enjoying because that is that's where they get their peace of mind that's where they get their family entertainment and so what the leagues are doing and the clubs the leagues are partnering more with the clubs more than i've ever seen in you know seven eight years and the leagues are telling the clubs saying hey we need to create a fantastic fan experience we need wireless we need mobile applications you know you look at nfl mlb nhl nba Every single one of them, and absolutely MLS, 
MLS is really taking a very strong hold in leveraging technologies for the span, uh, a lot of mobile technologies, and they're, they're doing it all across the world, and, you know, in these applications and, you know, and leveraging the, the mobile app along with the social technology. So in creating a, an end-to-end fan experience, and that's what's going to help us get them back into the stadiums and arenas and create an experience that they can't get at home. That's the most important thing. Christine, I know your conference is going to be held at the Liberty Hotel in Boston August 5th through 8th of this year. Some pretty special tours. I understand there's a tour of Fenway Park, of uh, the venue for the Boston Celtics. Uh, Talk about that a little bit as part of this conference. Absolutely. So these are just not tours. These are are exciting technology tours. Um, You know, of course, Fenway Park is celebrating their 100th anniversary. And so we wanted to plan this conference that was kind of centered around that, as well as the TV Boston Garden. And so at Fenway Park, we have a really fun event that we do have a technology tour for our group. But then after that, we have the entire upstairs balcony that's reserved for our seat group. And uh, so 200 of our closest friends are going to be up there celebrating and watching a baseball game and networking together and just really enjoying the, the venue itself, the entire stadium, the, the Fenway Park. And then the following evening on Tuesday night, we're going to the TD Bank North, and uh, we are doing a technology tour. Uh, the Boston Garden is going to be, you know, hosting us, and so we're going we're gonna to have a tour. We're going to talk to them about all of the different technologies they've used to create really unique fan experiences there, as well as CRM and databases and how they're reaching out to their customers and their fans and creating a more intimate experience for them. So we've got a lot of different things planned. We're also going to uh, the Markley Group, and the Markley Group is actually a colo uh, back-end location for the Boston Red Sox, and that's where they do a lot of their data disaster recovery. And so the Markley Group is actually hosting a wonderful dinner event Tuesday evening, and, and we're going to be having a tour of their data center as well. So we've got a lot of really cool activities, fun networking events, as well as great topics at the, at the conference. And you've got some terrific uh, speakers lined up on your panel as well. Who are some of those? Yeah, so we've got several. So we've got um, Bill Schmal, who's the CIO of the San Francisco Giants. He's going to be talking about uh, Wi-Fi and some of the data structures that are going in place. We have Dan Roberts, who's the president and CEO of Follett and Associates. He's also the book author of Marketing the Power of IT. We have some guest uh, speakers, uh, Craig Mead, CIO and VP of Channel Marketing for International Speedway Corporation, Marilyn Smith, CIO of MIT. Uh, we have Lorraine Spadaro, Vice President of Technology for DMC Boston Garden, Laura Lefton with the NFL. Uh, we have just, we have got a, an incredible group of speakers from all across professional sports, entertainment venues, uh, colleges, universities, ticketing companies, Tickets.com, Cisco, Microsoft, really phenomenal guest speakers as well as panelists. And, Christine, the best place to find out information about the SEAT conference is at SEATConsortium.com, correct? That is correct. 
thank you so much for taking the time to join us and uh, good luck with the conference. And, you know, I just think it's great that uh, someone like yourself and, and Chris Dill, who's a good friend, running this because it's of great value to everyone who works in the uh, sports and entertainment industry. Thank you. You know, we're just trying to bring something very unique and very intimate, uh, a different type of conference to the sports and entertainment industry and, you know, and let our, you know, our constituents, our peers out there know that this is for them. You know, this is something that we created and are continuing to mold and develop for them and for the for to really create something different for the industry. So thank you so much, Brian, for hosting us on the show. No problem. You can follow Seat on Twitter at Seat Conference as well. Christine, thanks so much for taking the time. We'll catch up soon. Thank you. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR will be right back. Give me a second. I, I need to get my story straight. My friends are in the bathroom getting higher than the Empire State. My lover, she is waiting for me just across the bar. My seat's been taken by some summer. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We're back. My guest is one of the top sports writers of the last 50 years, in my opinion. You've read his work in Sports Illustrated. He's a contributor to NPR. You've seen him on HBO. He's also the author of a new book called Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer. I want to welcome to the show Frank DeFord. Frank, how are you? Brian, it's nice to talk to you. It's really nice to talk to you. So i got to tell you a story. Uh, Several years back, 1989, I was one of the voices of Loyola Marymount Basketball with Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball. And I went to an event at a downtown Los Angeles hotel, and you were there, and it was for the kickoff of the National Sports Daily. So we've actually met before. I loved that publication, and I've been a longtime admirer of your work. Brian, thank you. You know, um, we only lost $150 million on that uh, publication. Yikes. (laughs) It was a great critical success, but I'm afraid it was uh, uh, not much of a commercial success. Yeah, why do you think it wasn't a commercial success if it had been released in today's age with the Internet and with all the vehicles to promote it? Do you think it might have succeeded? Because you had great writers. Oh, great great writers. The trouble is, of course, the Internet puts newspapers out of business. (laughs) So I don't think we do any better today. The trouble, trouble, I mean, very briefly, is is delivering. Cost money to truck papers around and deliver them to you know homes, and everybody wanted the latest scores, um, you know, which made it that much more difficult to get the paper out. It, 
it just you know was the wrong time i think maybe if we'd come along 15 20 years earlier maybe we'd have made it but um i know this that it people do remember it very fondly because we had so many great writers no, I definitely remember it fondly. So is someone who's been in the industry for a long time and you've seen so many changes, at the end of the day, do you think newspapers and magazines survive in hard copy form, or is everything going to eventually move online and onto your iPad? I think eventually, and, and I don't know you know, how to, how to categorize that. I don't, I don't know what eventually means, whether it means 10 years or whether it means 50 years. I, I think, yes, everything is headed in that direction to to digitalized that that we're going to see less and less paper but i think for a while um that the printed word is going to continue to be on the printed page <laughs> that at least you're going to have that that option i read an interesting thing as a matter of fact the other day is that is that young people everybody thought that, that as soon as uh books would come out on on devices like kindles and so forth Right. That everybody would run in that direction. Well, people, it turns out, really like holding books in their hands. I mean, it, it, maybe it's old-fashioned, but, but at least for a while, anyway, we, we've still got books to hold in our hands, like, like, like mine. But it's got to be different for you as someone who's been the author of a few books. Back in the day, you just wrote a book. Now you've got to put that out in other forms. Have you done, like, voiceovers for your books? So if people want to listen on audio or if people are putting them on their iPad, do you have to present that in different fashions now, right? Yeah, I, you know, as far as the digitalizing is concerned, I mean, that's just handled by technology. I have not been asked to do this as an audio book. I would hope that I would because... Obviously, particularly a personal book, a book that you know is written in the first person, is better if the writer himself can 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 do the audio, and so that I hope that I can. But yeah, you can buy overtime now. You can buy it as a book. You can buy it on any one of those devices. That that's that's the advantage. When you, it's your choice. I just hope people read it. Oh, they will. I've read it, and it's fantastic. Frank DeFord joining me, author of Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer. Some great chapters in the book. We'll get to those in a moment. But, Frank, sports writing has changed so much since you first started. What are the two to three ways, in your opinion, that it's changed the most? Well, first of all, simply that there is um, so many more people out there writing. I mean, I, I, I always tell the story, which astonishes young writers. I can remember covering the NBA Finals one year in the 1960s, and I can remember distinctly in the last game, now this is, this is you know, one of the big games of the year, spending 15 minutes alone with, after the game with Jerry West, uh, and then walking across from the Lakers locker room to the Celtics locker room and spending 15 minutes with Bill Russell. Now, you can't get that kind of access today. I don't care who you are. You simply can't get it. Those, those guys would be taken to an auditorium, and they would address the assembled. Uh, and so that's what's changed. You don't have the intimacy that you used to with, with athletes. Uh, I think another thing that, that's, that's, that's changed is, is, is simply the athletes themselves grow up. Um, grow up sort of know, knowing how, how to deal with the media better than they did in those days where they had to learn it. But now they see it from, from, from the time they're little kids. And, and so I, I think it's, 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 a, it's a more uh, less personal. Uh, sports writing is less personal than it used to be. It's tougher to get close to athletes and, and to write the kind of stories that, that, that really get, let you know 
what that person is like. Well, you talk about in the book how you had an expense account as a media person, and you'd go have <laughs> a drink after a game, and you'd really get to know the athlete. You don't see that happen anymore. Well, no. I mean, uh, I mean, right now athletes have their own posses. Right. Uh, they don't need. The, <laughs> they don't. They don't need the company of sports. Right. I mean, I'm being a little facetious. But but athletes really did sort of like sports writers in those days. There weren't that many people around, and if I mean they didn't like us all, but we were we were like their colleagues more than anything else. I mean we traveled with them, uh, got to know them, and so there were real friendships formed. When I see a, a player now, and of course I don't see him that often, but some guy that I covered back in the 1960s. Um, we greet each other more like old school friends than as a writer and an athlete, you know. And we shared something together. And particularly when you consider that, that hey, they weren't making much more money than I was at that time. Um, we, were, we were basically young people trying to make it in the world, and that, that made the bonds a little bit more than, than today when guys are making 4 or $5 million a year and the writers are making a, a little bit less than that. The other thing that you write about in the book, too, is you talk about how uh, you had a conversation with Wilt Chamberlain shortly before he died, and I guess you did yes. a piece on Bill Russell, and he said something to the effect of, hey, can you do one of those pieces on me? The thing that's amazing to me, Frank, is so many of the retired athletes that I interview on this show, they're so excited if you remember them, because they didn't play in the 24-7 era that exists today where everything's digital and it's all recorded. So if you remember their accomplishments, they're so grateful. Um, Brian, I think that's true, and I think there's another element to that as well. When they are in their prime, when they're the stars, um, they're bothered so much. I mean, it's part of what they have to go through, but people are at them all the time, you know, and, and, and then all of a sudden their career ends, and, they, and in effect they kind of disappear, and I think they start to miss it. It's only then that they miss all the attention right. that they got, because it used to be the attention drove them crazy. And so when you come back to them as they get older, after 20 years or whatever, then they're really grateful for you. <laughs> and then they, then they want to talk to you. I understand that. Uh, I, I never forget, as an interviewer, and I'm sure you know this too, people like to talk about themselves. <laughs> you know, that's, that's one of the realities of this world, one of the truths of this world. And so even when people say they're reluctant to talk to you, if you can get them started, their favorite subject is themselves. I think we all are that way. No, you're exactly right. Frank DeFord, you've read him in Sports Illustrated. He contributes on NPR. You've seen him on HBO. He's the author of a new book, just came out. It's called Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer. It's a fantastic read. My favorite chapter is when you talk about you know, your days covering the early days of the NBA, and you talk about how you know back in New York, if the, the circus was in town, the circus got priority, and the Knicks had to go play you know, at the armory down the street, how things right. have changed, right? And, and not only that, remember, the Madison Square Garden owned the Knicks, and they still kicked them out of Madison Square Garden. <laughs> uh, but, but often it was not uncommon in those days that a lot of franchises, their best night of the year, their largest crowd, would come when the Harlem Globetrotters played the preliminary game. The Globetrotters were bigger, in, in a sense, than the NBA was back then. Um, certainly it was on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, the NBA was, was, was struggling to make it. There were only eight teams. 
it was a little bit like, you know, sort of off-Broadway. Everybody knew everybody. There was a chance to, to, to you know, to, to really feel part of something. And, to, and, to, and I've been sort of proud to watch the NBA grow because I was there back when it really wasn't anything but a bush leg. It was just one step up from the sandlots. But, that's not, but well, let me say one thing, Brian. That takes nothing away from the players, because there were some great players back then who would be stars today. Let me let me tell you, the, the best players then would be the best players today. Well, and that's what I've often wondered is, how would we look at guys like Mickey Mantle, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, guys that played before the 24-7 era of media and Twitter, how would we look at them differently, for good and bad, if they had played in this era today? Well, of course, we would know them better. We would know them better in one sense, and we would be much from, much more familiar with them. I mean, look, look at the 19-year-old kid, um, Bryce Harper, who played right. for the Washington Nationals, right? I mean, we already know his name, right? Yep. I mean, he, he may turn out to be the greatest player in the world. He may turn out to be a good player. He may turn out to be, you know, overrated. But the point is that we already know who he is. We know a lot about him. He's been on the cover of Sports Illustrated on and on and on. And... And so there's just so much more familiarity with the players today, and it's something that athletes have to handle. There may have been some athletes in the past who couldn't handle that as, as, as well. But by and large, I don't think it would make any difference. I think the best players then would be the best players now. You know, great athletes in any era um, stand out above everybody else, and the, and, and the issue of time is, is, is to me, it's incidental, but we almost know too much about athletes today. We know too much about them as players. We don't know enough about them, perhaps, as people. Frank, you're, this is a really tough question to answer, I'm sure, but give me some of your favorite events that you've ever covered. As you're, you, know, you have a long career as a sports writer. What are some events that stand out to you? Well, I always say that what you see as a child whether in sports or whatever, leaves so much more of an impression upon you than, than anything else. I grew up in Baltimore. <laughs> so when the Baltimore Colts beat the New York Giants in what was called, still is called, the greatest game ever played in 1958, I was a kid. Nothing could ever top that. Nothing. I, I could see, you know, every every Super Bowl, every World Series game, every, every Kentucky Drew, everything. And it would, it would never... You know, all of them together could, could, could never top that. Um, I think the greatest match I saw as an adult was between McEnroe, it was tennis, it was between McEnroe and Borg at, at, at Wimbledon, the great match, I think it was 1980. People used to say all the time that the greatest events were heavyweight championship fights. And I think that was because it's just one guy against one guy, um, which I think is a little easier in your mind to, to, to deal with than team versus team, as great as you know some games may be. Uh, maybe that's why I think of the McEnroe board match because you have these two entirely different characters playing for the championship of the world, you know, and both playing out of their minds and a close game. Um, and then then there's so, just so many games that run together that they all were fabulous, but nothing nothing competes compares with what you saw as a child. You remember the music, of the, uh, you remember the clothes, you remember your first kiss, all that stuff. You never forget that. 
No, you're exactly right. Uh, sometimes the best athletes, the greatest athletes, don't always make for the best interviews. Which athlete yes. made for the best interview for you? Uh, the, the smarter ones. I mean, that's, that's, that's a very quick answer. I'm thinking of some of the people. Bill Russell, fabulous interviewer. Jerry West, terrific interview. I mentioned McEnroe, so he's fresh in my mind. Fabulous interview. Another one, another tennis player who may be the brightest of all the athletes, uh, Arthur Ashe. Um, the guys who have a little edge to them are the ones who, who are the best. And, and you, you said athletes, but you, but you know, Brian, athletes are young. It, it, it takes a little maturity to, to, to make you more interesting. And it's often the coaches the older guys who, who are going to give you the best interviews because they've lived, they've suffered, they've, they've been through it. And, and so as a general rule, it's either the older athletes or the coaches who are going to be the most intriguing personalities. Often the kids are very boring. They're not their fault. But, you know, they're too young to have really lived and to have known anything. No, you're exactly right. A few years ago, I had a chance to interview uh, Jack Nicholas in depth, and that's my favorite interview ever. Yeah. And, you know, he's got a tremendous body of work. He's a course designer now. He's an amazing husband and grandfather. So just this whole, you know, 20-minute conversation we had was phenomenal, and that was my favorite interview. Yeah, whereas you can talk to some, you know, great player who's 20 or 25 years old, but he doesn't really have the depth or the maturity. Um, in, in most cases. And again, it's not his fault. He simply has not lived. And, and, and I, I'm, a, I'm a better writer now than I was when I was 20 or 25 years old. So the, the same thing follows. Before I let you go, how long you want to do this? Are you going to be writing forever, books and <laughs> doing all this stuff? Or are you going to uh, sit back on the porch and uh, kick up retirement one day? Well, I do do a little of that already. I mean, um, but, but writing is, is, I guess there are a few professions, writing, acting would be another one, in which, you know, you can go on uh, until, you, until you lose your mind anyway. <laughs> you, you can go on doing it at least, uh, uh, you know, on a part-time basis. And I love writing. And so I'm going to, you know, continue as, as, as long as I can. But don't worry. I'm, I'm spending a little time on that back porch now more than ever. That's good. Well, I can't tell you how much I've always enjoyed your work, and you're one of the best. I was saying earlier in the show, if there's the Mount Rushmore of sports writers, you're on it. And I really enjoyed your book, Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer. Go out and get it now on Amazon.com and at bookstores everywhere. Frank DeFord, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Thank you, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SB Radio. La, 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 whatever. La, 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 it doesn't matter. La, 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 oh well. La, 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 we're going at it tonight. Tonight, there's a party on the rooftop, top of the world tonight. It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the Record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. 
We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything is on the Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. All right, we're back. Buzz Bissinger is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of four books, including New York Times bestseller Three Nights in August, Friday Night Lights, which sold two million copies and inspired a film and a TV franchise. He's a contributing editor for Vanity Fair. He's a sports columnist for the Daily Beast. He's done a number of amazing things in his career. He's got a new book out called Father's Day, uh, a journey into the mind and heart of my extraordinary son. I just read it, and it's a phenomenal read. Buzz Bissinger joins me now. Buzz, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm really good since you read the book and you loved it. I really appreciate that. Thank you. You know what? I'm a father myself. So as I read your book, I felt so much of your emotion that came through the pages. I got to tell you, I haven't read too many books that were as brutally honest and just as emotional as this book. I found myself getting emotional reading the book. I imagine writing the book for you was very emotional. Well, it was, which is, you know, why it took so long. The You know, the frame of the the book it's it's almost a road trip book in some ways the frame of it is a cross-country trip that i took with my son zach who had trace brain damage at birth because of severe prematurity uh we drive across the country we did it in the summer of 2007 and i figured you know this book will take a year to write and come out in 2009 but i frankly couldn't write it i wrote it started writing for about six months in the fall of 2007 you know trying to see if a book might be there and the rhythm was wrong, the tone was wrong, the balance was wrong, and I don't think I was going close enough to the bone, you know, getting getting to the to the core of really being honest. So I literally put it away for two years. I did that book with LeBron James, Shooting Stars, and then returned back to it, you know, with dread, but sort of began to see pathways of, you know, how to tell the story and really, you know, saying, look, you've got to confront yourself as a father and a, as a man, and you have to confront yourself um, in terms of your feelings about your impaired son, no matter um, how brutal. You talked in the book about your own upbringing and relationship with your parents and how that impacted your relationship with your own kids. Again, as a parent, I see that in my relationship with my daughter now. I thought that was a really interesting uh, part of the book. Well, look, I mean, you see it. We, you know, we, we see it in sports all the time. I mean, you're in the sports world, and I have covered sports. I mean, you see how fathers and mothers live you know, through their kids because of their backgrounds. You know, they may have been great athletes, and they want their kids to be great athletes. You know, in my case, I came from a life of obscene privilege. I grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, you know, my father went to Dartmouth. My mother went to Smith. My uncle went to Princeton. My grandfather went to Harvard. I mean, you know, that that kind of success was assumed. And, you know, at a very early age, age I said, all right, that's how I need to define myself. You know, by being successful, and I felt a lot of pressure, you know, from my mother because she liked it, and I got, you know, addicted to it. And the problem with an addiction is that, you know, there's never enough of it. You always want more, but there's no question that, um, you know, I applied that in some way, you know, to my sons. You know, Zach was a twin, 
And I knew from the very beginning he was born. He was not going to reach my expectations, and I had to change my expectations. But, you know, there were times that was very, very hard. Yeah, you talk about what a world of difference, three and a half minutes. That's the span between your first son, Jerry, being born and your second son, Zach, being born. When you put it in that frame, it really is amazing. Well, I mean, think about it this way. Obviously, I know in, in, in radio it's an eon of time, but if we both counted from you know, 180 down to zero, it would take exactly three minutes, which isn't very long. But, you know, maybe this book could be simplistic is about three minutes and how they defined a lot of lives, how they defined uh, my son Zach's life because he had oxygen deprivation and only weighed one pound and 11 ounces and was born 13 and a half weeks prematurely. Um, how I defined Jerry's life who was one pound and 14 ounces and early out three minutes early and by some miracle had no side effects. It defined my life as a a father, you know, dealing with twins who I thought would be perfect mirrors of one another and and were not. And it certainly defined, um, you know, their mother's life. Um, You know, our marriage fell apart. I think it was not surprising given the trauma of the birth. At that point in time, you know, male twins that, that size and born that early, they simply did not survive. They did not uh, make it. They were the youngest male twins ever to survive and live at, at Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia, which is the oldest, you know, in the country. So from the very beginning, there was just all this swirl of emotions because of 180 seconds. Buzz Bissinger, the author of the new book, Father's Day, A Journey into the Mind and Heart of My Extraordinary Son, joins me. A fantastic read. Let's talk about the road trip that you took with your son, Zach, because it sounds like you had a different expectation of what it was going to be, but then you finally saw that your son wanted familiarity and routine, so you went back to the places you had lived before, and you bonded on this road trip. Talk about the road trip. Well, the, the circumstances where his uh, his mom's family was going to fly to Spain for two weeks, and, and Zach just at that point in time, he really didn't like to fly. It's a long trip for him. And I had him for those two weeks. I wanted to do something special, something that resonated, something that would make a difference, something that we would remember. And I came up with this idea of driving across the country. I've done it four times. I've loved it every time. You know, that's where I got the idea for Friday Night Lights. It's where I fell in love. Uh, with my present wife, and I just thought not only would it be fun, I wanted to really focus on Zach, and I wanted to do it in an intimate space and, you know, with a lot of time, and let's face it, there ain't no more intimate space than a rented uh, pale blue minivan (laughs) 56 miles an hour. Um, Zach, you know, when I told him about it, you know, he's, he's a good son, and he said, gee, Dad, it, it really sounds great, but I have one idea. And I said, what's that? He said, why don't we fly instead? Because short, fl- short flights you can handle. And I said, no, Zach, that kind of defeats the whole purpose of it. But, you know, the thing about Zach, a child like Zach with the kind of impairment that he has, he's kind of addicted to routine, and, and I wanted him to get out of the box. I also knew that, you know, seeing the, the normal sights of America, the, the Badlands and, you know, whether it's Monument Valley or Yosemite or Mount Rushmore, that has no meaning for him. So we did pick uh, a route in which we went back to all the places where we had lived, which was great because he loves that. And it was also, frankly, probably one of the worst routes ever taken in American history. <laughs> So as you're going along on this trip, you have some some breakthroughs and you're getting to know your son more. Um, 
how hard was it for this trip to, I guess, live up to your expectations of what you thought it would be? Well, the, you know, look, it's, it is a road trip book. The book is, you know, the book is a lot of things. It's always hard for an author to describe what the book. It's almost a coming-of-age story of, of, of my age, of coming to grips with myself as a father and as a man, my own personal failings. It's coming to grips with a son, um, you know, who is different. Uh, the first, and I, I guess I thought, you know, it would be perfect at the very beginning. There would be all sorts of epiphanies, and there weren't. I mean, it was tough. I felt stressed. I was tired doing all the driving. Um, Zach was a very steady influence, but, you know, the, I still felt this distance. You know, I still wanted to yearn for that conversation that I had never had with him because I've never had a real conversation. There were times I felt stuck with him. That's perhaps the hardest thing. We're doing the same thing we've done for 20 years because now at this point in time, he's, you know, he's 24, and I would do it for a while, you know, a game sort of, you know, very intense tickling, and then I'd have to stop because it was driving me nuts. Um, you know, I lost things. I got lost. Zach, to his credit, never got upset. I was very volatile. But there was, uh, you don't want to give it away, but, you know, a breakthrough came after a total near disaster in which I thought about turning around. That same day, uh, we went to an amusement park outside of St. Louis, and the, the result was magical, and the whole tenor of Talk about your patience. A lot of parents who have uh, special needs children, they don't know if they have that patience until they're tested. Have you learned patience, or did you have that patience from the beginning? Um, I mean, you know, yes and no. Um, I'm not a particularly patient person, or really more accurately. I just get frustrated very easily. And, um, you know, I was always a very, very loving father, and I didn't want to put too much pressure on the boys, whatever. I had, but yeah, there are moments where I flash out uh, and and spaz out, and there certainly were moments where I felt frustration with Zach. You know, why did I have this child? Why me? I know it was a certain amount of self-pity, but I think that's common for a lot of parents, whether they have special needs children or not. Look, we all have dreams. We have aspirations. Our children, you know, certify us. In this case, it was never going to happen, and it's not a matter of love. You, of course, love your child, but, it, you know, you do feel frustration. You do feel rage. You do feel disappointment. You do feel cheated. You feel that your son is, or daughter has been cheated. Those are natural emotions. So in a sense of this book, I'm trying to give voice to the voiceless because, unfortunately, parents are reluctant to express any of that because then people out there say, well, see, you really don't love your child. Well, that's, that's, that's absurd, but it's hard. It's hard, you know, as I say, you know, you don't have to be impaired. Um, children, you know, grow up all sorts of ways, and parents, as, as much as they think they are perfect, um, are not. Buzz Bisinger is joining me, author of a fantastic new book called Father's Day. That's the thing I appreciated about the book the most, Buzz, was your brutal honesty and your ability to say, you know what, I'm not perfect. Um, maybe I haven't responded to this in the best way. I mean, look, there's a lot of people. You're a Pulitzer Prize winner. You're very accomplished. There's a lot of people that would have never written this book because they want everyone to think their life behind closed doors is rosy and, and fantastic. And the fact that you put this all out there in a book book in such a brutally honest way. I've got to commend you. Well, you know, I mean, I appreciate that in the sense that I've decided, look, if you're going to do this book, if you're not going to be honest, as opposed to try to making yourself out to be a victim, 
Um, if you're not going to be honest, you know, there is no point. And it wasn't kind of a conceit, oh, I'm going to be honest, where no one else is in a memoir, although I think, frankly, no one else is in a memoir. I think most of them are made up and many of them are piped. Um, but, you know, I never meant this uh, book to, so, to be, you know, so I could be the hero um, of my own story. I, I am imperfect, and part of the journey, and there are multiple journeys, is trying to at least come to grips with who I am and what I am as a father and how that's been shaped by ambition, by the need for success, by my relationship um, you know, with my own father and the price that I paid and the price that my children have paid. It wasn't out of cruelty. Uh, trust me, no one's life behind closed doors is, is as rosy as they may want people to think. Nobody's. And, you know, I think honesty is a virtue. You know, if you don't have honesty, then really, where do you start? It's the starting point for really talking things out. But honesty is a funny thing in this country today, and there's been wonderful reviews that respect it. And like yourself, you respect it, but there's some, some people in reviews who don't respect it, you know, who think I'm cruel, who think I'm deranged, who think I'm crazy, and they think that I've been cruel to my son. And that really, really hurts. I've been many things, but I've always loved Zach, and I would never do anything uh, that was cruel. I may not always do the right thing, and I don't, but I would never, ever um, do that. But look, I knew that showing that type of honesty uh, would be, in a sense, controversial. How is your son, Zach, doing now? Zach's doing fantastically. I mean, um, since since the trip in 2007 and up to the, the present time, he's uh, on the trip. He showed me all sorts of things I really didn't know he had, an ability for empathy, an ability to calm me down, um, and observational uh, abilities, a kind of wonderful, unintentional uh, sense of humor, you know, responsibility, and gaining more independence. And he has progressed. Uh, you know, since then, his vocabulary is better. He's making a better connection uh, with the world. You know, the book is also about learning what what character really is. You know, character is not how big your IQ is, and it's not how big your house is, and it's not how big your car is. Uh, character, to me, is taking every ounce that you have within you, no matter how much it is or how little it is, and using it to build a beautiful world for yourself. And Zach, granted, had a lot of help, but he's done a lot on his own. And um, he has done that. And he's, you know, blossoming. And, I, uh, you know, the one thing that has changed, I still mourn for him. He's not going to drive a car. He's not going to live alone. He's not going to marry. He's not going to have kids. But I mourn for him. I do not mourn for myself. I think I have let go of the self-pity, and most of the time I, I see, and I say this, you know, I see not a man-child or still a little boy. I see a man who I admire the most of anybody, you know, in the world. Well, it's a fantastic story, Father's Day, a journey into the mind and heart of my extraordinary son. It's written by Buzz Bissinger. Buzz, it's really an honor to talk to you. I've admired your work for a long, long time, and uh, this book is the the pinnacle for me of what you've done as a parent. I really related to it, and uh, great job. Well, I really, really do appreciate it, and I also appreciate the fact that you really carefully read the book. As you know, not many interviewers do, but I, and you know, I'm very flattered by what, what you say, because I do think it is a book for, for all parents. You're going to get something I think you're going to get a lot out of this, no matter if your child is different or impaired or not. 
Yeah, it's about parenthood. And, um, you know, your relationship with your son is fantastic and it comes through so vividly in the pages of the book. And like I said at the beginning of the interview, I found myself getting emotional as I was reading the book. So I can only imagine how emotional it was for you writing the book. It'd be great to meet you. And you know, it's always great to get you know, people out to these things. You never know if anyone's going to show up. And I do read from the book, and I think it, at least it gives people a sense who haven't read it of, 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 of what's in it. All right, and you're a great follow on Twitter, too, at Buzz Bissinger. <laughs> I, I like following you on Twitter. I'm an, I'm an interesting follow on Twitter. You are um, an interesting... I don't know if I'm a great one. <laughs> My wife hates it. I just wish you had some opinions, because you really don't express your opinions yeah, no, very I, often. I like it. I'm, I'm very gentle on Twitter. I'm like Alyssa Milano. <laughs> <laughs> Buzz, have a great day, and I'll look forward to hopefully meeting you on Sunday. All right. All right, take care. Thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. The sun goes down, the stars come out, and all that comes is here and now. My universe will never be the same. I'm glad you came. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. We're back, and I'm joined on the phone right now by Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12. Larry, good day to you. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be with you. Yeah, thanks for making the time. Uh, Let's talk about the Pac-12 TV network. I see you've got Rick Neuheisel, Ronnie Lott, Summer Sanders. How is that all shaping up, and when do we expect to see some uh, 24-7 programming? It's uh, coming together very well. It's been a pretty ambitious project, as you know, we only decided last summer that we were going to be doing our own network. That's when we had gotten distribution with the four big cable companies, Comcast, Time Warner, Cox, and Bright House, and basically then had to build a team and uh, build a facility, etc. But it's all coming together uh, on schedule. We'll be launching in August, uh, you know, a couple of weeks in advance of opening football weekend. And uh, uh, we've got a great team we're putting in place. Uh, we've introduced, as you mentioned, some of the talent. Uh, you'll see a flurry of announcements, I think, over the next weeks about additional faces of the network, uh, some of the uh, broadcast analyst teams for football in particular, some basketball and Olympic sports announcements too, uh, you know, as well as other important information about advertisers. I expect additional distribution. Our programming schedule will be uh, working out with ESPN and Fox. Who's got what games? During the football season, we plan to release the first three weeks of our football schedule 
in early June. So uh, we're, we're, we're coming into the home stretch before our launch mid to end of August, and uh, a lot of information will come out over the coming weeks. 24-7, that's a lot of airtime to fill. Are we going to see, you know, one of the things I like, I think we talked about this before, I like like when HBO does hard knocks, and I like the behind the scenes, the storytelling. Are we going to see some of those in-depth features on athletes and teams? You definitely will. Um, it's going to be a building process, though. We've taken on something pretty ambitious in that we're going to be broadcasting 850 Pac-12 events next year. Wow. So it's pretty massive. I don't think anything's ever launched, you know, at this order of magnitude in terms of the number of live events right away across seven different networks. So we're going to have 35 football games, about 140 men's basketball games. What that means for our fans is that every football game is going to be on TV nationally, either on ESPN, Fox, or the Pac-12 Network. Every men's basketball game is going to be on TV. And then we'll have over 700 Olympic sports events, which is the thing that most excites me, you know, given our excellence in baseball and softball, volleyball, track and field, etc. The fact that these events are going to get broadcast is going to be uh, tremendous. So we um, are, are, that's our highest priority, is doing a great job around the events, the studio shows, pre-post game shows around those events, and you'll see us do some shoulder programming uh, early on. But that's the area that we'll, we'll build over time. But our vision is very much around Pac-12 Networks being the place to come. You can get behind the scenes. You can get more depth, more inside information. We're, we're going to try to super serve those fans that have an insatiable appetite for their teams and, and, and the conference. And the fact that we've got the regional networks will really allow, allow us to do that. So, you know, Pac-12 Oregon is going to have you know, more in-depth information and programming over time about Oregon and Oregon State than in other parts of the country. So we really got, I think, a pretty inventive and unique structure, you know, having a national network plus regional networks that will allow us to tailor our programming to the fan base. Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12, is my guest. Last week, I had Bill Hancock, the executive director of the BCS, on this show. We talked about the four-team playoff. A lot of questions about uh, the format. How do you decide on the four teams? Are they conference champions? Are you playing on a neutral field or a home field? Are you including the BCS bowl games? Larry, where do you stand on these issues? If you were asked, what's your vote on these issues, how do you weigh in on that? Well... We are, we've really evolved as a conference in terms of our, our position on this. I think traditionally people looked at the Pac-12 as uh, being resistant to change. So, you know, obviously we've changed a lot in the, in the conference in different areas. I think been very progressive and are a leader nationally in a lot of areas. And I've tried to take a fresh look at, at this whole topic. Uh, our goals and my goals uh, haven't changed. It's about preserving the valuable regular season and making the regular season continue to count above all else, uh, preserving the Rose Bowl. Uh, it's a very, very special relationship that we've got, 100-year tradition. 2014 will be the 100th Rose Bowl game. It's something you know, student-athletes come to our schools hoping to make the Rose Bowl, you know, if they win the, the Pac-12 conference. Um, and, you know, within that, uh, figuring out how we can uh, evolve and come up with a college football postseason that is more fan-friendly. And I've also you know, talked to our student-athletes about it as I've been around the conference. And, you know, the players want to play. They want to earn it on the field. They don't want polls 
uh, deciding deciding things. You know, happy, the ones I've talked to are happy to play an extra game, you know, if it helps determine it on the field. So I'm in favor of that. How you do it, you know, inside the bowls, outside the bowls, how you select, you know, there's a lot of nuance and, and a lot of negotiation going on about those things. I'm determined to uh, protect our conference and preserve the importance of the regular season and have been an advocate for conference champions being an important qualifying criteria because our schools play a tougher schedule than any other. Last year, Oregon would have been excluded from the playoff because they were ranked five at the end of the season, uh, even though they won the Pac-12 championship because they had two losses. They lost, and one of those losses was to LSU uh, down in Cowboy Stadium. I think it's great that Oregon schedules games like that, that they put it on the line. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the polls as they are now punishes you, you know, if you have a loss, no matter who it's to. And I want to make sure that our schools still feel comfortable scheduling tough games, which is great for the fans, great for the student-athletes, and they can know. As long as they win the Pac-12 conference and they're one of the elite teams in the country, they're going to make the playoff. That's why conference champions is important from my perspective. Each conference plays a different type of schedule. We play nine conference games. We're going to play Big Ten teams. Our schools like to play tough competition. I don't want us to be penalized for that, number one. Number two, in terms of where you play the games, you know, obviously I've supported the idea of home-hosted models, which is an option for the semifinal games. We're playing home-hosted for our uh, championship game. You know, we had a great experience at Autzen last year. It really validated, I think, our decision. Um, but uh, there is concern about what it will do to the Rose Bowl and the other bowls if you take the semifinals outside the bowl system. So I suspect uh, our conference is going to support four-team playoff within the bowl system so that the Rose Bowl could host from time to time, uh, which would probably mean when the Pac-12 has got a one- or two-team in the country, we'd have a chance to host it at the Rose Bowl, and it would support the bowl system, not undermine it. So uh, that's that's. Uh, my thinking at the moment on this ultimately decision will be made by our university presidents at a board meeting I have with them in early June. Larry, some have suggested that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten might be better served to break away from this proposed four-team playoff and to play in the Rose Bowl. And every year, you know, you know you've got your conference championship and then you've got the Rose Bowl, a little mini four-team playoff of your own. You maintain the tradition around the Rose Bowl. You could make an exclusive TV agreement with them. Is that something that's in your thinking at all? Uh, it's always in the back of your thinking because, you know, that's, we're, we're very fortunate. We've got a great default position. We've got the best default position in the country. You're right. You know, if, if this doesn't work out, Having our champion play the Big Ten champion at the Rose Bowl every year, you know, it's the best bowl in the country. And we'll have the most valuable TV contract, and uh, the Rose Bowl and the Pac-12 will continue to be the envy of the rest of the country. So the traditional bowl system is a pretty sweet result for the Pac-12 and our schools on the one hand. But I try to also take a broader view in what's in the best interest of college football as a whole and how do we continue to promote the game, uh, build fan base, build enthusiasm for it? And part of that is having some type of you know, playoff for a national champion at the end of the year. It's, it's made college football a truly national event. So while short-term, maybe selfishly for our schools, you know, just playing in the Rose Bowl would be a great result, I don't think it would serve the broader interests of college football, our fans, 
our student athletes because you would lose the dynamic of the uh, the rivalries and the interest in terms of what's going on in the rest of the country. So I think long term probably is not the best direction. Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12, is my guest. A few minutes left with him. Let's talk Pac-12 basketball. Last year it was a down year for the conference, but you did have some exciting news. You're moving the tournament to Las Vegas for the women. They're going to Seattle. Uh, what does the league need to do to get back amongst the upper echelon conferences in basketball? Well, look, if you if you look over any you know, reasonable period of time, our conference is undoubtedly amongst the uh, elites in college basketball. Um, you know, we've won more NCAA uh, titles than any other conference. The UCLA as a school has won more than any individual school. Um, we put more players to the NBA uh, every year uh, than, than any conference, especially over the last five, ten years. Um, but there's no doubt, last couple of years, uh, we, we have been down, in part because of that double-edged sword of, you know, you get these great recruits that come in, and after a year, they're, they're off to the NBA. So if you look at the roster of players that would still be in school, right. if they lasted four years, it's, a, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, so, I mean, these things do go in, in ebbs and flows, uh, and it's something that um, we do spend a lot of time thinking about and talking to coaches about, making sure we're doing everything we can do to continue to position the conference as elite. And part of it is, you know, we, we don't get the national uh, respect and attention we deserve because of some of the TV contracts that we've had up to now. It's going to change dramatically next year. The fact that every men's basketball game is going to be on TV, available to the media, uh, the East Coast media, uh, they carry a lot of sway, I think is going to be a big difference maker. The fact that we will now be on ESPN for the first time in a long time for men's basketball is a game changer. We're going to have 46 men's basketball games on ESPN next year. Wow. Um, they, they might be able to sub-license a couple of them to uh, CBS nationally, but we are going to go from sometimes being an afterthought to being front and center in terms of ESPN's uh, promotion. Um, and so those are things that we're able to do from, from the conference office, uh, always looking to you know, improve the quality of the competition, just made some major changes to the leadership of the basketball officiating program that I think is going to create some buzz nationally to have the NBA's former director of officiating you know, take over our program. So I think the quality of the product and the things the conference controls dramatically improving next year. And then you look at the kind of teams we have. Um, uh, uh, I feel like um, next year the narrative in college basketball is going to be the Pac-12 turnaround story. The way we were beat down this past year by the national media, because our schools did get off to a rough start in terms of uh, interconference play and the tournaments, uh, I think we're going to be one of the most exciting stories this year. So we've got some of the best recruiting classes in the country, UCLA and Arizona, some of the top recruiting classes. Um, some of our teams that were young last year are getting a little more seasoned. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, uh, if the headlines uh, when basketball season starts next year are, you know, look at the amazing turnaround that's happened in the Pac-12. Larry, last question for you. You've always been aggressive, and you've already added two new teams to the conference in the last few years. Uh, are you happy with 12 teams, or would you ever look at expanding beyond the 12 that we have right now? Uh, both. Very happy with 12 teams. I feel like it's the, it's the right number. We re- reaffirmed that uh, last year. We think Colorado and Utah have been a uh, great fit. And, uh, you know, look at what we've been able to do uh, in terms of our TV agreements, launching our own network, successful football championship game. You know, the conference is really on a roll right now. 
So I feel great about what we've done. And, um, you know, fi- and, and the kind of schools that could be a good fit for us are few and far between. When you look at the academic standards, the athletic excellence, and schools that would bring value, you know, adding for adding's sake doesn't make a lot of sense. But adding for strategic purposes where you can add a lot of value for all the members uh, is worth looking at. So we're not spending any time thinking about uh, expanding further right now. Don't see it on the, uh, on the horizon anytime soon. But I would never say, like, we'd never consider it. You know, the sands of college sports are shifting uh, all the time, more dramatically in the last few years than traditionally. And over time, I've, I've been out there saying, and I don't shy away from, uh, over time, I do think you'll see further consolidation in college sports because it, it is fragmented right now and somewhat confusing. But um, I, I, I don't think anytime soon you'll, you'll see a lot of dramatic shifts. You know, the traditions matter, uh, you know, locked into long-term agreements, and uh, it's not something we're focused on at the moment. Larry, I really appreciate your time. Best of luck with the launch of the TV network and figuring out the postseason football format. And I appreciate you taking the time to join me. Oh, it's great to be with you, Brian. This is Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. More of the show is coming up. On the other side of the street, I knew. Stood a girl that looked like you. I guess that's deja vu. But I thought this can't be true because you moved to West L.A. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. This is Sports Business Radio. All right, we're back. Thanks to all of our terrific guests this week. Jason Cole from Yahoo Sports. He's a great follow on Twitter, at Jason Cole Yahoo. Uh, Christine Stoffel with the Seat Conference, at Seat Conference on Twitter. Frank DeFord, one of my favorite authors ever. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Buzz Bissinger and Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12. want to remind you again, you can find everything you need, all of our audio, our best interviews over the years. It's all located at sportsbusinessradio.com. If you're not downloading our iTunes podcast every week, you should be. Just go to our website, sportsbusinessradio.com. Look for the iTunes icon, and you can uh, directly link to the iTunes podcast. Uh, I'm on Twitter at SB Radio. Griggs, you're on Twitter. Uh, what's your handle? Uh, B Grizzle, right? B Grizzle 22. B Grizzle 22. You got to follow uh, Griggs. Yeah. Get him some followers. There you go. Uh, who's going to be in the NBA Finals? Uh, I do think it's going to be uh, the Spurs and the Heat. And who's going to win the Stanley Cup? LA Kings. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. 
We're on the same page. There you go. <laughs> and he's not, we're not really going out no, on too no. big of a limb right now. <laughs> no, not at all. I think uh, they're going to be fun series. I, I really think the Stanley Cup's going to be a fun one, though. I think it could go six, seven games, but I think Kings will win that one. Kings, amazing ride. I mean, they barely yeah. snuck into the playoffs, and uh, look what they've done ever since they've been road warriors. So that's been fun to watch. Again, find everything you need. Uh, on our website, sportsbusinessradio.com. Thank you to our staff, Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Jared Melzer, Doug Zanger, and Max Waterman. We will talk to you soon. Enjoy your week. You've been listening to Sports Business Radio. Hop in that window, I got places to go. People to see time is precious. I look at my cardiac out of control. It's the age of new media and citizen journalism. Everyone with a smartphone and a flip cam is a reporter, and everything is on the record. I'm Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio, and I team with former Nike executive Lee Weinstein to form media training company Everything is on the Record. With a combined 40 years of experience dealing with the media and helping our clients craft authentic messages, we'll help you navigate the tricky media landscape that exists today. Everything is on the record has provided media training to pro and college athletes, coaches and executives, as well as to government leaders and CEOs. We'll teach you how to break through the clutter with your messages and we'll also assist you when you find yourself in crises. It's time for an innovative new approach to media training that best fits the world we live in today. For more information about Everything is on the Record, visit us online at everythingisontherecord.com. Contact us today to learn more about our innovative approach to media training and how we can meet your specific needs. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com.